the Oscar goes and to. And the Oscar goes and the Oscar to. Goes to. My only object in being here is to try and get at the truth. What shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Could have been a contender. Fasten yourself. I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm gonna make him an offer. Oh, really? Love is is too weak a word. Welcome to the next Best Picture podcast. Moonlight, Best Picture. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 43 of the next Best Picture podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia, and this week, it's a little lonely in here. Uh, there's not many people to join us. Uh, I only have uh, some some guy named Michael Schwartz. Hello, everybody. But you know what? I am here to fill everyone's energy. So, yes, Michael's <laughs> in a very very positive mood today. I I don't know why. I'm always in a positive mood. I guess that's true. I guess it is. I, I'm I'm the one that's more of the grounded, pessimistic type. I suppose. I don't know. We're here to even each other out. But I will say this, this, this podcast episode is not going to be totally pessimistic, and that is because I am choosing this week not to talk anything about this upcoming fifth installment in this terrible franchise that is completely ruining Hollywood, that is done by a director that is often, what's the word I'm looking for here, misunderstood? Michael Bay is technically a technical genius. Would you, would you agree to that? I think he knows how to use visual effects. I don't know that I'd say genius but i i think he's got a bad eye for written material but i think that what he does with the camera and the way that he shoots practical effects and blends them with visual effects is quite awe-inspiring honestly um but with that said we're not going to talk about uh transformers the last night uh, this week. Instead, there's another film coming out next weekend that we are extremely excited about here on the Next Best Picture podcast, and that is Michael Showalter's film, The Big Sick, which had its premiere earlier this year at the Sundance Film Festival. It is opening in select cities this weekend and will be expanding nationwide, I believe, July 13th. So there's something to look forward to with that for sure. Also, Sofia Coppola's The Beguiled will be coming out, but we thought with The Big Sick opening, we thought this would be a really fun opportunity to talk about some of our favorite and least favorite Judd Apatow production films. Um, there's quite a lot to go through with that, so Michael and I will be rattling those off. Um, we're actually recording this right now, Michael, on Father's Day as well, so I thought we could also talk about some of our cinematic uh, favorite daddies uh, in movies. There's quite a lot to go through with that. Um, but first and foremost, uh, the number one question I want to ask you to get us started here today um, is, did you see anything this week uh, that you wanted to possibly talk about? Well, you know what? By the time this episode goes up, I'll have seen Beatrice at dinner, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, I saw that uh, last week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you liked that quite a bit, right? I did until the ending. All right, well, we'll have to see where that goes. Yeah, I'm very curious to hear your take on it, because everything leading up to that ending for me, I thought it was light, I thought it was fun, I was having a blast with it, and then that ending came, and I just was... I hear it's very dark toward the end. Yeah. All right, well, we'll have to see about that. Uh, but as of this recording, the only movie I saw this week 
is actually a holdover. It took a long time for it to get around to my area, and that is the 2016 Palm winner, I, Daniel Blake. Oh, wow. Wow, that finally just now came around to you? It just had it. Well, it just opened in the U.S. It did something in, like, New York. But mm-hmm. in terms of Oscar qualifications, it just opened uh, two weeks ago. Wow. So it's eligible for this year's Oscars. Are you serious? Yeah, it just opened in Los Angeles. That's, that's whew, man, I, I don't think anything's going to happen with that, but. Premiered a year ago, and now it's just coming around here. Wow. That's, that's mightily impressive. <laughs> yeah, so I saw that this week. It came to my local art house theater. And uh, what I can say about it is that it is definitely a Ken Loach movie. It's about uh, lots of social issues, and it more, uh, it's more interested in talking about those issues than really... It's not as much of a directorial achievement as you would think a Cannes movie would be, but it has a good energy to it. It really wants to get its message across. The performances are outstanding. It wasn't my favorite, but I really admired what it was doing. Um, if I could recommend a Ken Loach film to anyone out there, uh, look up a movie called Kess. That's K-E-S. Uh, that film is on the uh, Criterion Collection and is uh, definitely worth seeking out. It's a personal uh, favorite of mine. Uh, but Ken Loach is an acquired taste to many people. So, yes. you know, how people will respond to I, Daniel Blake, now that more people are getting a chance to see it, um, is something that, quite honestly, I don't expect big things from. But... Um, I'm hoping to catch it myself. It was one of the few films I didn't miss out on last year. Um, I saw too much this week. Um, maybe, maybe a little too much. I even got told on uh, on Twitter uh, that I need to stop seeing the movies that I see, um, <laughs> and that I need to really, really put my energies and focus into seeing uh, some more of the smaller indie films like Band Aid. Um, so that I can review that and maybe give that film a, a platform and a chance for people to see. But let me just rattle off some of the movies I saw this week so you, ha- so you have an idea. I saw Cars 3. I saw All Eyes on Me. I saw Rough Night. And I saw The Book of Henry all in the oh same boy. weekend. Yeah. yeah, I listened to your podcast on The Book of Henry, and uh, that sounds like quite the experience. Uh, it is. Uh, it's a movie that I actually would recommend people to see only on the basis of if you just want to see what a god-awful train wreck really looks like in cinema. Um, that is exactly what The Book of Henry is. So if you're looking to watch it just for that, so that you have that frame of reference and you know what the bottom of the barrel truly looks like, that would be the only reason to do so. Otherwise, that movie is just pure garbage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. This is not a review here of the Book of Henry, obviously. Um, so it, we are recording this on Father's Day right now. And, you know, uh, Father's Day is a time of the year where, uh, obviously, we come together with our dads. We reflect on all that they have done for us. And um, one of the things, uh, you know, we just celebrated Mother's Day recently uh, there's a lot more movies about fathers, I think, than mothers, uh, you know, because the industry is more catered towards uh, men. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, dads in cinema to really go around and to really talk about. Um, but are there any for you, Michael, that really stand out? They could be good dads or they could be terrible dads. Um, any that uh, either since you were a child or today even that really, really speak out to you? Yeah, it was interesting when you were asking me to think of my favorite fathers. And, you know, you could look at the good ones and the bad ones. And the bad ones would be like, 
uh, Don Vito from The Godfather, Darth Vader from Star Wars, and those seem to be the first that pop into people's minds. Yeah. But for me, thinking of just like a loving father or someone who uh, always puts their family before anything else, uh, some of the titles or characters that came to mind for me would be like Marlin from Finding Nemo. Yeah. Or uh, Tevia from Fiddler on the Roof, which was a Broadway production, but just seeing Topol play him in the movie, uh, that's a great character. Even Ted Kramer from Kramer versus Kramer, oh, his yeah. character arc, mm-hmm. how he goes from uh, sort of not dismissive, but doesn't always put his son first to the point where he has to then turn his life around to cater just to the son. What a well-deserved Best Actor win for Hoffman that was. Absolutely. That's one of his finest performances. Absolutely. And even on the comedic side, you have uh, in the birdcage, Armand and Albert Goldman, uh, played by Nathan Lane and Robin Williams, just sort of shifting their life to help their son as his uh, homophobic in-laws come to visit. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of ones that really do jump jump to mind. Uh, there's some that are obvious, like you were just suggesting with uh, Darth Vader and the Godfather. I mean, there's Liam Neeson and Taken. I'm sure everybody knows. Um, another one that comes to mind immediately would be uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and There Will Be Blood. Yeah, there's an evil one. Most recently, how, you know, you want to talk about evil. What about uh, Denzel Washington's Troy and Fences? Yeah, I would say that guy's a pretty flawed character. And the sad thing is uh, he exists. Like, he's around. Oh, yeah. even though you see him trying to work for his family, he lets his own over-the-top persona get in the way of all of it. That's actually a great Father's Day movie. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree on that. I don't Um, know why I didn't pick that. He's a terrific character. I mean, as despicable as he is. If your father is the James Bond type uh, and is not looking for a hard, serious drama like Fences, a more recent film that they could watch uh, could be Logan. Um, you know, that's a, now a, a recent one, I would say. Um, you know, my goal right now, Michael, is to be uh, to rattle off a couple of uh, cinematic dads. And I want you to give me the response of, oh, I didn't think of that one. Uh, so that's my goal right now. I'm going to, I'm going to try and stump you. Are you ready? All right. Let's see. Okay. Christopher Plummer and Beginners. That's a good one. Okay. Royal Tenenbaum and the Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> Gene Hackman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Brad Pitt in the Tree of Life. Yeah. Ah! You know what? That, that, that is a movie about parenting and fatherhood it's actually just about motherhood as much as it is fatherhood mm-hmm. and that's uh yeah really interesting uh perspective there now i'm going to name two comedic dads uh that people don't really seem to think about on a first you know that's not it's not something that's at the top of mind uh jk simmons and juno oh he was such a great presence in that movie right yeah he's wonderful as that what was his name mac uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's great. That should have been a supporting actor nomination. Yeah, that role was uh, too small, I think, for that. And he didn't have the uh, quote unquote the scene. I, I I mean, he has that one really heartwarming scene where he gives her uh, like the quote unquote the talk. Um, and he tells her the whole line of, uh, you know, uh, you just need to what it has it go. You just need to, you know, love who you are or something like that. I don't remember. It's been a yeah, while. Yeah, he was just such that. a great presence. And I think it's performances like that that helped him uh, elevate his profile when he was up for Whiplash. Oh, yeah, People definitely. People go, oh, I loved him in Juno. I loved him in Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. He always had those great smaller roles before Whiplash. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, Jim's dad in American Pie. Yeah. <laughs> now, believe it or not, you probably wouldn't expect this from me, but I think American Pie is pretty funny. 
Oh, it's hysterical. And he is one of those characters, Eugene Levy, who you always remember when he's on screen. And of course, he has a, a role in the key moment in that film mm-hmm. when he catches his son in a ridiculous act. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Christopher Walken in Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, Oscar nomination there. Uh, probably could have won it if there were a little bit more campaigning going on. Yeah. Two little mice fell into a bucket of cream. <laughs> that, that's emotional. That's a com- little comedic at times. He's really great in that movie. Uh, who else we got here that I could probably think of? Um, oh, wow. Here's one. Rick Moranis, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. You know what? I haven't seen that since I was a child. But speaking of Rick Moranis, you know what movie almost made my list? Mm. Parenthood. Oh, wow. Steve Martin. I wonder how many how many of our listeners have seen Parenthood. Oh, I'm sure a decent amount have seen it, especially since it was a TV show for many years. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Oh, you know who else? One more person. Who? Calvin Jarrett from Ordinary People, played by Donald Sutherland. Yes. Oh, my God. Should have gotten him an Oscar nomination. Yeah, that's amazing that he doesn't have a nomination because... That's a really great role, and his character in that, you know, Mary Tyler Moore's character is damaged the entire time and doesn't really want a relationship with her son after uh, her other son dies in an accident. Yeah. But Calvin is the one who sort of takes Timothy Hutton's character aside and says, I'm sorry, this is what your mother's doing. I still love you. You need to understand that she loves you too, but she's not necessarily showing it in that way. Yeah, And then you had the tragic ending where, spoiler alert, Mary Tyler Moore leaves the family. And just the father and son sitting outside, that's a pretty stunning image. Yeah, definitely. Uh, just a couple more. I'm going to just round off here, and then we're going to move on to the next topic. Uh, Robin Williams and uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah, he was a runner-up for me. Yep. Uh, Gregory Peck and To Kill a Mockingbird, obviously. Same with him. Uh, Roy Schneider and Jaws. Oh, I didn't think of him as a father, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a great performance. Got to protect those beaches for the kids, man. Yeah. <laughs> George Bailey, It's a Wonderful Life. Of course. Got to go with him. Uh, Big Daddy and Kick-Ass, Mufasa and The Lion King, um, Will Smith and The Pursuit of Happiness. What about uh, George Clooney and The Descendants? Yeah, definitely that one. Uh, that's a let me tell you, that's a movie and a performance that I'm not really too high on the movie itself, but oh, I think really? he's really good in it. I loved Jean Dujardin and The Artist, but I, if I were an Oscar voter, would have easily given it to Clooney. I think that's the yeah. best work he's ever done. Yeah, that's uh, that's a big yes for me as well. I th- I think that is definitely his best work. Um, what were the other ones I was just thinking of? Viggo Mortensen in The Road, Tom Hanks in Road to Perdition, um, Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Have you ever seen I Never Sang for My Father with Gene Hackman and Melvin Douglas? Ooh, a recommendation. I don't get, I don't get these that often. Hit me, Michael. What do you have? Okay. I Never Sang for My Father based on a play from the late 60s, and the film came out in 70 or 71. And it stars, uh, like I said, Gene Hackman as the son, Melvin Douglas as his father, and it's about the relationship they have after the mother dies. And he wants to move to, uh, I think it's Los Angeles, with his girlfriend. And the father gives him trouble. And it's a very, very deep and emotional uh, 90 minutes, like a play on film. The, the performance is there, especially from Douglas. It's not a necessarily likable character, but it is just raw. And you see what goes on between the father and the son here. It's really incredible acting. All right. I'll definitely have to look this one up. 
I always love it when I could get recommendations uh, from people of movies I've never seen before. It makes me so happy. Sure. <laughs> All right. So um, we have some uh, questions to discuss uh, on the episode here today. Uh, some fan questions that have come in. Uh, this week we lost somebody. Uh, this week we lost uh, John, uh, John G. Alvidson, uh, the director of Rocky and the Karate Kid. Who pulled off a pretty amazing feat at the 76 Oscars. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're talking about just winning uh, director of picture for uh, Rocky? Yeah, over Sidney Lumet, Alan J. Pakula, uh, Martin Scorsese, all these big names. Well, when you think about it, Rocky is such an iconic film and really, really captured the zeitgeist that year. And um, was Small little indie that made it big. Yeah, and that's that's part of the charm of the movie, too. Is it's about the scrappy underdog who, you know, is trying to achieve his dreams and go for something big. And, I mean, that was exactly what the narrative of the movie was at the Oscars that year, you know. Um, it's just something that really, really resonated people during such, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, troubled times? Yeah, it was right after Watergate, and that was sort of the uh, pickup that the country needed. Exactly. Um, I, I, lo- I love asking people all the time, you know, which film would they have voted for if they were an Oscar voter? It, 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 it's tough. It's not so it really simple. Is. I've changed my mind. You know, you have, what, what is it that year? It's Nashville, uh, All the President's Men. No, Nashville Men. was 75. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so it's uh, Network, All the President's Men, Taxi Driver, and Rocky. I always. Uh, yeah, and I always forget the last and one. And Bound for Glory. Yeah, yeah. So, what would you say? What's your pick? Oh, Network is a top, like, five all-time favorite for me, so. Yeah, Network is also in my top five of all time. I absolutely love that lineup. Taxi Driver's right around there, too. But I would actually vote for All the President's Men. Now, is that um, from a mindset of today or a mindset of if I was living during that time? From both, actually. Like, at that period of time, that film is just groundbreaking in that it presents journalism as or journalists as superheroes in a sense Mm -hmm. and it just is so clever how it plays with the scene and creating such drama out of something that could have been boring to someone just watching a a movie but seeing it today 40 years later actually yesterday was 40 years since the watergate break-in so to understand it 40 years ago and see how little has changed and how masterful the camera work is from gordon willis and the direction from Pakula, the performances from Redford and uh, Hoffman, I think it's just a really incredible feat of everything. Yeah. No, you're definitely right about that for sure. Um, the question this week uh, from Al Robinson, Al Rob underscore MN, uh, he's asking which character do you prefer more, Rocky or Rambo, I guess, in, in regards to, to Stallone? I, I prefer Rocky personally. I say Rocky by default because I've never seen Rambo. <laughs> of course you wouldn't. Um, but I do love Rocky. He's a great character. If you ever see Rambo, uh, Mike, like if it just happens to be on or something, just make sure it's the first film. Uh, that's really the only one you need to <laughs> see. Um, and then our thoughts on the Karate Kid remake. Never saw it. Yeah, I never saw it either. I, I, I prefer to think it doesn't exist and I just want to keep the original close to my heart. You know, I was actually at Philadelphia Comic Con a few weeks ago. Uh, and Ralph Macchio was there. Oh, really? He's in his early 50s, and he looks fantastic. Like, I was standing right next to him. He looks absolutely fantastic, so good for him. Yeah, good for him is right, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I always love him and uh, my cousin Vinny. <laughs> yeah. 
such a fun movie. All right. Other questions that we have uh, this week. We also have from Josh Parham, J.R. Parham. How often do you have uh, picture director splits on your own personal ballots and do you support them in general? I've had a few over the years. I mean, I see nothing wrong with the idea of a split. If you're looking at the movie itself and then how well something was directed, obviously your uh, best picture winner is going to be well directed on its own. But in a year like uh, 2013, for example, Blue Jasmine was my favorite movie of the year. But I didn't think Woody Allen did the best directing of anyone that year. I would give that title to Alfonso Cuaron. So, yeah, it happens. Now, what do you attribute the uh, recent trend in splits to? Because we never used to get splits as often as we get them now, it seems like. Um, But yet, ever since, um, like, what, the 2010s? Yeah, well, that's because of the preferential voting system. Oh yeah, why didn't I? Why didn't I just immediately jump on that? <laughs> I, I should have known that. <laughs> I had a blonde moment there. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. All right. You're, you know, you're 100 percent right. I guess I, I I must just be asking questions for the sake of asking questions. <laughs> That's okay. We're Alf Oscar season. We're not always thinking about this now. Yeah. No. Yeah, well, speak for yourself. Um, the preferential ballot is something that is very unique because I do prefer splits. Um, so as a result, I'm very okay with the best picture winner being the consensus choice that you can uh, predominantly sit down in front of a majority of people and have them enjoy it versus the directing uh, winner being the more technical achievement. Um, and I think that that's fine because I actually consider both awards to be on equal level playing fields with each other. So if one film wins one and another film wins another, it's like they tried to give best picture to both films. It almost seems like in a way. Yeah, I sort of agree with that. So you were pretty happy when Moonlight took best picture and La La Land took best director. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think of everyone on the podcast, I think you know I was probably the happiest person. Uh, yeah. Because, because I had been predicting... I had been predicting that for weeks, uh, even though I, you know, obviously chose La La Land to win Best Picture because with that precursor support, how could you? How you could you not? You didn't feel good about that decision. No, no. I mean, it was one of those things where I was like, "Well, Moonlight's going to win adapted screenplay and Mahershala Ali, and that's that's fine, and you know, I'm very okay with that." Um, but I just had this feeling. I just had this gut feeling that you know it was going to pull through in the end. Um, but I did. I didn't have the balls to put it on my ballot though. So, but I mean, there's been other years, like 12 Years a Slave and Gravity uh, is a very recent example that comes to mind where had Gravity won Best Picture, I actually would have been very pissed off and I would not have enjoyed that at all. Um, I thought 12 Years a Slave deserved Best Picture. I'm actually one of the few people that thinks that uh, McQueen should have won over Quarone, but that's just me. Um, If you look at it from the standpoint of, like I was saying before, the director is a technical achievement. Um, or the artistic vision and the best picture prize is, like I said, the film that you could put in front of most people, or it's the film that you really want because it wins best picture to stand the test of time. You know what I mean? I think Moonlight is a more important film than La La Land. I think 12 Years a Slave is a more important film than uh, Gravity. I I don't think that Argo is a more important film than Life of Pi, um, I actually think that Lincoln should have won Best Picture that year. Um, Wait, you would have voted for Life of Pi? No, I would have voted for Lincoln. 
<laughs> oh, oh, really? Yeah. Dude, that uh, was a, such a good year. I actually, I remember when Oscar nominations came out that year, I was predicting uh, Steven Spielberg to win Best Director um, until, you know, everybody started saying, oh, Life of Pi is going to win all of these texts, and you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So... I, I was going back and forth on Spielberg and Ang Lee up until the very last minute, and then I switched over to Ang Lee, and I was, you know, I mean, I was happy I did for my ballot, but at the same time, it just, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of Life of Pi, so there's that. No. Okay, so we've gone through the uh, fan questions for this week. Thank you so much, everyone, for sending those in. We really, really do appreciate it. And you know what, though? I'm just going to just refresh my feed one more time to just see if one came in at the last minute, and nope. Okay. So we're all good to move on to the next part of the show here. And the next part of the show is actually our trailer review for this week. Uh, we had the trailer release for the Winnie the Pooh real-life true story behind the uh, beloved uh, character. Um, this is called Goodbye, Christopher Robin, and it's starring Domino Gleason, Marco Robbie, telling Domino to take this one. Once upon a time, there was a great war that brought so much sadness to so many people. Hardly anyone could remember what happiness was like. But something happened that changed all that. His name is Christopher Robin, but we generally call him Billy. A toast, C.R. Mills. C.R. Mills. It helped us to believe in the good things. Which one would you like? This one. Yeah, same height, please. Go. The fun things. He's your favourite. I'd have to go for the little one. Piglet. Has to be Piglet. And a world full of imagination. Are we writing a book? I thought we were just having fun. We're writing a book and we're having fun. And then, just like a tap you turned on, happiness came pouring out. Okay, so Michael, uh, what are your what what are your thoughts on uh, Finding Neverland? It's fine. It's good Sunday afternoon, uh, watch it with your grandparents type of entertainment. I don't think it should have been a Best Picture nominee, but it's totally fine. And Saving Mr. Banks. Same exact thing as it said with Finding Neverland. I was actually a little disappointed with Mr. Banks because of my love of Mary Poppins. Right. Well, hopefully that gets a little rectified uh, later this year uh, with, uh, what is it, the Mary Poppins sequel? No, that's 2018, December 2018. Well, in in the upcoming future. Um, So do you have that general same feeling about Goodbye Christopher Robin then from the trailer? Something about this, I don't know what it was, but it just didn't click. Maybe it was the narration or them trying to conjure up the image of the Winnie the Pooh universe without taking us into the Hundred Acre Wood. I don't know. Just it didn't seem like it was going to work from the trailer. I didn't really get much out of this. And I hate to say because it sounded pretty good on paper. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things where a lot of times you could tell a lot about a film by the casting. And... Domino Gleason's still not a big name for him to be leading your film. I guess Margot Robbie is, but her uh, choice of material is very sporadic and all over the place sometimes. 
Um, and Kelly McDonald, even though she's known in certain circles, um, she's not known in all circles. So I look at this cast and I say to myself, there's not really a big, big, big star here that has um, a lot of integrity and credibility to their name here. Uh, you know what I mean? So I usually look at that as either this is um, a weak sell on the director of the project or this is, um, a, you know, just a pass on the material. So I don't know which of the two it is just yet. I will say this, the lush, warm cinematography, um, I actually did feel had kind of a magical quality and vibe to it that didn't make me feel um, at, at, at one point somewhat transported to the 100 Acre Wood. And on the other hand, I clearly saw through um, all of the mechanisms that they had in place to make me feel that way. You know what I mean? And you're right, it did lean a little too heavily, I suppose. Um, you know, the World War, was it World War One? Yeah. it? Those scenes in the beginning uh, took me off guard. And I think maybe for the marketing of this film, they might be leaning more into the Winnie the Pooh uh, aspects of the story. However, I feel like when this comes out, this could be more of a serious uh, drama than we are possibly expecting. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, you can't always tell by what the trailer is. And it does have a prime release date of... I think it's October 10th from Fox Searchlight. Yeah. So, I mean, this seems like it'll be a Toronto play. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what happens after that. Which, by the way, I put in my uh, I put in my name to uh, go to Toronto. That's very exciting. And I'm hoping it, it pays off. I would love yeah, to go. Fingers crossed. Yeah, exactly. So, we'll see. Hello, everyone. This is JD from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week, we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three lists. Okay, yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. That's correct, Brendan. On top of our main show, every Friday... You can also hear our extra film podcasts. Good job, Brendan. Thank you, JD. It's my goal to make you proud. You're the father, after all. <laughs> yes, and I'm very proud. Uh, you can listen to the In Session Film podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Brendan, will you please let me complete just one? Nope. Oh, for heaven's sake. Listen to the In Session Film podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not kidding? how this works, sir. Hey, no, you, you, no, no, you no. go cry at Midnight Special again, oh, okay? okay? That's what you're I good will. for. I will. You know what? And I'll do it while pummeling you. I'll do both at the same time. How are you going to pummel me? Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't buy it. That's just how <laughs> it works. All right, let's move over to news of the week here. Um, news of the week. Uh, the Weinstein Company is going to be releasing the untitled remake of The Untouchable, starring Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart. Get ready for it. March 9th of 2018. Commercial. Yep, not an Oscar player. That's off the docket, people. Uh, you're excited for Wonderstruck, right? I am. Okay. Well, there's another film coming out this year called Wonder Wheel, and it is uh, being written and directed by your favorite, Woody Allen. Um, it is going to have Kate Winslet, Jess, Justin Timberlake, and Juno Temple. Uh, Amazon has set the release date for December 1st of 2017. This is very surprising to me because... Woody Allen movies have almost always come out in the summer lately. So I don't know if this is part of what Amazon wants to do with his films from now on, or if they just think this is going to be a big contender. 
but I've heard uh, rumors, uh, behind-the-scenes things, that Kate Winslet is remarkable in this. It's like Blue Jasmine level good. So I don't want to get anyone too excited, but I think this really uh, ups its profile quite a bit. What do you think? I think it does, but you know, Woody Allen's a more hit, a more missed and hit director for me. So I, I don't ever, I don't actually predict Woody Allen in my predictions anymore until the film gets released. Yeah, I mean, they love him when he's on. And look, I have my own thoughts about his films, so I know it sometimes goes against the critical grain. But look, we saw him get a screenplay for Blue Jasmine most recently. A uh, little dip from there, but Cafe Society, I know not everyone loved that, but that actually got pretty decent reviews. So, uh, it was more it was negative than positive. Something, wasn't no. It? Check again. I think it was. Check again. I'm telling you. No, you know what? I'm going to check now. Because <laughs> I, I. 71. I, are you serious? Yeah, 71 on Rotten Tomatoes. Fine. It's still, it's still negative, so I. I no, still, negative I, to you. I still no 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 no. It's still more negative than what you said. <laughs> In any event, though, um, Peter Farley, or Farley, I don't know how you say it. The Farley brothers. No. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yes, uh, Peter Farley. Um, you know, he's uh, done mostly feature comedies his entire life, pretty much. But he's going to be making a new movie with Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali. It's called Green Book, um, and it's based on a thing that they used to be called uh, the Negro Motorist Green Book, published from 1936 to 1966. It was a book for African Americans on the road where they could stay, where they could eat, and where they could get gas. Um, It is a true story in 1962 where this black uh, concert pianist uh, named Don Shirley had a tour of the South, and he was afraid, as he should have been. So he went down to the Copacabana and hired the toughest bouncer who's going to be played by Viggo Mortensen to drive him. It's these two guys on the road for three months touring the South and all the shit that they run into. Um, Farley uh, says that he's really looking forward to it. Um, these are all his words over here. So um, Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali in a film together that deals with uh, race, racial tensions uh, a couple decades ago. What do you think about that? Well, it seems like quite a surprise for him. Like, he used to do Dumb and Dumber and The Three Stooges. So mm-hmm. I don't know what drove him to do this material, but hey, we're living in a world where Adam McKay just won an Oscar for doing a film about the Wall Street collapse of 2008. Yeah. So you never know. If something strikes you and you know what you're doing with it, by all means, give it a shot. Yeah. No, I, I hear you on that. I, I love seeing... Um, people get out of their niche and try something different. Um, that's something that always impresses me and always gets me somewhat excited. Um, so that, you know, who knows? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something with, with that. It just, I don't have high hopes. Let's put it that way. Do we have a distributor? Uh, not off the top of my head. All right. Well, that'll be one to watch. I mean, hey, you have an Oscar nominee from last year and an Oscar winner. So that can't uh, be dismissed too much. No, yeah, I mean, you have to imagine, maybe it was one of those things where they just, like, were, you know, together on the circuit, and they were like, oh, we gotta do a film together, you know? Oh, I've got this material that I'm reading right now, you should definitely come in for a meeting, you yeah. know? <laughs> um, Alright, Bruce Dern, D- uh, Dakota Johnson are joining uh, Shia LaBeouf in The Peanut Butter Falcon. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> hey, hey, hear me out. Uh, Tyler <laughs> Nielsen and Mike, Mike Schwartz. 
Did you, oh. Did, yeah, Mike Schwartz. My doppelganger. Uh, wrote and will direct the story about a crab fisherman as he embarks on a journey to get a young man with Down syndrome to a professional wrestling school in rural North Carolina away from the retirement home where he has lived most of his life. So I guess Bruce Dern is going to be the lead. I guess Shia LaBeouf is going to be uh, the young man with Down syndrome. Oh, God. No idea who Dakota Johnson is going to be uh, based on that. If he is playing a person with Down syndrome, I call BS on that. Yeah. That just is so wrong. I'm sorry. If you're going to have a character with Down syndrome or any other disability like that, hire an actor with Down syndrome to play the role. There are plenty of them out there. They're on Glee. There was a great actress with Down syndrome who gave a great performance. There are people out there who want to work. We don't need to see Shia LaBeouf if that is the case. Do a performance like this, it's, I don't know, I just don't feel right about it. I'm worried this is going to be one of those classic, uh, we're going to think that it could possibly be, uh, you know, an Oscar play for him. Oh, he's played a character with Down Syndrome. Oh, man, the Academy's going to eat that it's up. It's like Simple Jack from Tropic Thunder. There you go. There you go. And it's the kind of role that, you know, will kill his career if it hasn't already been killed off multiple times. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. Shia LaBeouf keeps on finding ways to, like, make himself relevant again, I feel like, all the time. Um, From Transformers to putting a bag over his head. Exactly, yeah. right? Or watching his movies in the uh, in the movie theater and live streaming it. <laughs> yeah, this is not good. Uh, did you see The Lost City of Z? I did. Did you like it? I admired it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I didn't love it. I, I liked it. I more so admired it as well, mostly due to its... Uh, um, callback to uh epic scale filmmaking that we don't really see that often nowadays but james gray um is going to have his new movie um called ad astra uh it starts filming this summer and it has brad pitt uh attached to it um it's actually james gray expanding his uh his scope into the realm of sci-fi uh this is what james gray said in a recent interview uh, yes, yes, and yes. I am terrified by the project. The science fiction genre is so tricky because there are elements of fantasy usually involved, and there are also fantastical elements. What I'm trying to do is the most realistic depiction of space travel that's ever been put into a movie and basically say space, space is awfully hostile towards us. It's kind of a heart of darkness story about a travel about traveling to the outer edge of our solar system. I have lots of hopes for it, but it is certainly ambitious. It starts shooting July 17th, so it's not too far away i am filled with terror but that's okay and then he laughs um this is very interesting to me that he says that he wants to do like the most realistic depiction of space travel that's ever been put to film because um you know christopher nolan and alfonso coron each tried to do that recently uh but james gray is definitely a very scaled back and grounded director and i really 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 like his uh choices as an artist in all of his movies, even if all of his movies haven't really uh, worked for me on a personal level. So I'm very curious to see how a filmmaker of his sorts, a non-commercial, non-blockbuster uh, filmmaker, tackles um, this genre. Yeah, I mean, he used to be known for doing uh, New York intimate Jewish stories or stories uh, related to, not the mafia, but just sort of gritty Brooklyn we own the night. Stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Lost City is the was a stretch for him. This sounds like another stretch, but uh, 
hey, you know what? He's an interesting guy. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, the Brad Pitt uh, casting is a way for them to, I guess, receive funding. Oh, well, Brad Pitt also did uh, Lost City of Z. Plan B did that. So that, that makes perfect sense, I suppose. I suppose it's one of those things where it's like, hey, we'll put up the money for your project, but then you have to cast me in, the, in your next project. I don't know how it works. Yeah. Whatever well, the conversation remember, was. Brad Pitt just did War Machine on Netflix, which you don't hear a peep about. Yeah, so. that's, well, it's not that good. So there's that. Um, okay, and then uh, other news of this week. Richard Linklater's Last Flag Flying is going to be debuting at the New York Film Festival on the opening night. Um, That is a good spot. The film is starring Brian Cranston, Steve Carell, and Lawrence Fishburne. Um, It is a spiritual sequel to uh, The Last Detail. Hal Ashby. Yeah, and it's uh, this is uh, the press announcement here. Uh, Linklater's lyrical road movie is as funny as it is heartbreaking as it follows three aging Vietnam-era Navy vets, soft-spoken doc played by Steve uh, Carell, unhinged and unfiltered Sal by Brian Cranston, and the quietly measured Mueller played by Lawrence Fishburne, who reunite to perform a sacred task, the proper burial of Doc's only child, who has been killed in the early days of the Iraq invasion. As this trio of old friends makes its way up the eastern seaboard, Link Leader gives us a rich rendering of friendship, a grand mosaic of common life in the USA during the Bush era, and a striking meditation on the passage of time and the nature of truth. I am so excited based on that synopsis. <laughs> yeah, this strikes me as a very big contender. You have uh, what sounds like showy performances, an emotional story, a respected director based on material that Oscar already embraced over 40 years ago. Yeah, this sounds like it could really be something special. Plus, Amazon just gave it a mid-November release date, which is the same thing that Manchester by the Sea received. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I am very, very interested in this one. It's joining a very prestigious club here, too, of films that have had the opening night at the uh, New York Film Festival. Last year's uh, film was 13th, which went on to do very well in the season. Uh, Gone Girl, Captain Phillips. Life of Pi or some other recent examples. Yeah, The Social Network. Yep. So this is a very, as you said, this is a great, great spot for this film to be in and probably indicative of the quality that we're going to be seeing from it. Of the three uh, cast members here, who do you think uh, could be uh, heading towards a nomination? I think Steve Carell could maybe land in the Best Actor race and Brian Cranston in the Supporting race. I want to know more about Lawrence Fishburne's character because he's really a respected actor too. Look, these are all previous nominees. None of them have won. But working with Linklater, he's always great with his actors. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, especially the Steve Carell character who's burying his son here. You know, we saw him nominated for Foxcatcher a few years ago. He made an impression there, and he's a well-liked person, so I'd be very interested to see where he goes. I feel like Battle of the Sexes is not going to do well. That's going to be commercial from the trailer we saw, and it looks good. It looks like a good movie. Yeah. But I think this is where he's going to want to put all his time and effort. Yeah, the role definitely sounds like it will be a good showcase for him and for for the others as well. It'll be a comment on, I guess, uh, the early aughts, uh, the war in the Middle East, all of that. And Linklater is a great guy to handle it from 
things out of it. Agreed. Hey everyone, I'm Jason. And I'm Lee. And we are the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. We look to take a magnifying glass to the films you love with a warm atmosphere and a good laugh, new releases, retrospectives, and absolute classics all reassessed and reviewed. Check out the ASC Podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes, or keep in the loop on Twitter by following me at film underscore faculty, or Lee at Big Pick Reviews. That counts as a promo, right? Right. All right, cool. All right, well, I guess we'll cut here. See you later. <laughs> Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. Let the games begin. Okay, last bit of the week here. Uh, we are going to be talking about our favorite and least favorite uh, Judd Apatow uh, productions. Uh, this weekend sees the release of The Big Sick, uh, premiering in select cities nationwide. It will be happening July 13th. So... Uh, Michael, there have been a lot of films over uh, the last couple of years that Apatow has been involved in. Um, I figured we could start off with something that we, you know, don't like at all because, as we know, sometimes the uh, the humor is not for everybody. Um, That's correct. <laughs> so, is there any uh, Apatow productions that have just completely either offended you or upset you, or you just thought it was terrible? Like, what, what's uh, what's your take here? I think this movie has its moments. But I don't love it, and it's been years and years since I saw it, so maybe if I watched it again, I'd find more to think that's funny about it. But that is Step Brothers, which he produced in 2008. It has its moments, and I don't think it's the bottom. I, I, I admit I'm not as high on it as many other people are, but yeah, I, this movie never really clicked for me. Will Ferrell and John C. Riley, who I like a lot as comedians and actors, I find their characters so obnoxious, which I get is the point. Yeah. But I just like did not find their man-child act appealing at all. What yes. I did find entertaining, though, was uh, Mary Steenburgen and Richard Jenkins. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, when Richard Jenkins has that scene where he's like telling about the time when, as a kid, he wanted to be a dinosaur. If you remember that. Do you remember that scene? Vaguely. <laughs> it's been a long time. I actually saw this movie in New York when I was there for a few days seeing some shows. And it started downpouring, and my show wasn't until 8 o'clock. So I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? So I went to the theater, and that was the thing playing. So I saw it there. You don't remember the movie, but you remember the experience of seeing the movie. I do. That was actually (laughs) the first R-rated movie I saw in the theater. Oh, wow. Damn. That's really cool. Nice. Not all bad, but just not my favorite Judd Apatow. Yeah. um, I would say that there have been like really, really shitty Judd Apatow uh, films that have been put out there, like year one for example, I think it's just garbage. Oh, the Harold Ramis one. Oh, man. But I, I got to uh, just pay special mention to a film which I think is a complete mess, and that is uh, Funny People. Really? Yeah. Well, we might hear about this one later, so talk about this. Funny People is a film for me that I think starts off really well, um, and I actually really, really like the trajectory of the characters. But my God, when it turns into the uh, Leslie Mann, Eric Bana, Adam Sandler show in the uh, second and third act, that film just completely goes off the rails for me. And I just, at, at almost two and a half hours long, I just don't know what the point of the movie is anymore at a certain at a certain uh, point, you know? Hmm. Uh, I think we'll hear about that one later. Okay. <laughs> so let's start off with your uh, number three then. What's your uh, number three favorite Apatow film? Okay, so my number three, believe it or not, is Funny People. Oh, God, why? Yeah, so Funny People is my number three. 
and that's why I wasn't going to say anything when you were talking before about it, but I think, aside from Adam Sandler's performance, which I actually probably would have given him an Oscar nomination for, I think he's that good. He is quite good. I understand what bothers you about the end of it and that it is overlong. I agree with all that. But I think Apatow is such a good writer that the material, while overlong, it didn't bother me watching any of it. And I think, yes, it could have been tightened, some of the Eric Bana, Leslie Mann stuff. But I think it all fits in within that story in an interesting way. It, no, it just feels like two totally different movies with two totally different plots. Yeah, but it's all revolved around the Sandler character and how he sort of has a new lease for life after he gets his uh, news that he's in remission. I just, I, I just think it's just phony and, and like I, I really think it's not. It's just sloppy screenwriting. I feel like I, I, I understand, I get it, but it's just way too scattershot, way too low, all over the place. It doesn't feel focused. This isn't a new argument. It's interesting because I remember when the movie opened. And I think it was at like a 62, 63% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. So you really see that divide. But when you go to look at the reviews, it has everything from like a one-star review to like a three and a half from Roger Ebert. Yeah. So people were really divided back then, and I think still are. So I find that pretty funny that we had it on both lists yeah. for both of us. But yeah, I understand that there are issues with it, but I think the final product is very interesting. Yeah. Plus, that was also the first time I saw Aziz Ansari, so <laughs> that's not for nothing. All right. Well, for me, uh, my number three favorite Apatow production is actually uh, Bridesmaids, uh, Paul Feig's movie uh, with Chris O'Dowd, uh, <laughs> Rebel Wilson, Rose Byrne, freaking Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig. This Jill Clayburgh in her last performance. Yeah, yeah. This movie is one that... Um, was a surprise sneak attack that I did not see uh, coming. Um, but it's one did. that uh, really just, I felt like it was one of those movies where everything just clicked in terms of the beats, the humor, um, the interaction between the cast and the performers. Um, it doesn't have, in my opinion, like a, you know, grand message to say about anything. Like most of these movies don't. But as far as just a well-put-together, tight, solid movie that just flowed effortlessly from one joke to the next and just had really, really standout moments. I mean, like, Kristen Wiig just destroying that large, giant cookie is just so, so pathetic and hysterical at the same time to me. Um, And also, this was the first film where I truly understood the talents of Rose Byrne, um, who was somebody that really did float under my radar for a very, very long time. So... Um, I got to give it over to Bridesmaids. Uh, you know, surprise uh, Best Supporting Actress nomination for Melissa McCarthy. Completely deserved. She stole Best the show. Screenplay. Yeah, and the screenplay as well. You know, it's not often we see uh, the screenplays of comedies get recognized, but this is one of those uh, films where, like I was saying, it's just so tight. Um, that screenplay definitely deserved its recognition that it received. So that's my, uh, that's my number three. I would argue that Bridesmaids and a lot of Apatow films you mentioned that it doesn't have any grand message to it, which I guess is not grand. But when you look at what the films are about, like Knocked Up or something like that, it's about these uh, basically losers as they start out. You know, stoner losers that don't have much going in life. And how they mature into functioning adults. Yeah. And that's what happens with a lot of his uh, male-centric films. But with Bridesmaids, which he was a producer on, that I saw as a story about 
post-recession, uh, how people in the struggling economy sort of make it work. The Kristen Wiig character is always like a step behind, and Rose Byrne is always upstaging her. Oh, yeah. And you uh, sort of see how that uh, puts a toll on her life and how she suffers for it. She's also very privileged. She has a lot of money. You know, Kristen Wiig is what? Driving a crappy car. Yeah, she's a a former baker, right? Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's interesting. In that post-recession mindset, that's uh, something that actually – never clicked for me until you just said it and it makes perfect sense and it kind of recontextualizes the movie in a way yeah so that was interesting the dynamic between the two characters and how Maya Rudolph is drawn to one and not the other yep. and I like that a lot the Chris O'Dowd relationship too with Kristen Wiig I also found to be um, authentic and believable as well which yeah. really goes a long way I love when she starts dancing on the yellow line yeah <laughs> <laughs> alright what do you have for number two Number two, another movie that divided people when it opened, but I still stand by, is This is 40. Like, these are your top three? Oh, my God. I think This is 40 should have been a nominee for uh, Best Original Screenplay. Or maybe it was no. adapted since it came from Knocked Up, the, no. the same characters. This, to me, felt like a 2010-era James L. Brooks movie. We get such insight into these characters who, yes, they are... Uh, the 1% living in a wealthy area in California. Yes, their problems are, quote-unquote, white people problems that some audiences don't care about. But I know who these people are. I've seen them in action, and I really just enjoyed spending, even if it was two and a half hours, I enjoyed spending time in their life and seeing what went on within them. They turned 40. Some people have their midlife crisis a little before midlife. And I just really enjoyed the performances and the characters here. I mean, the idea was good. I just don't find that its execution is great. I, I find it to be one of his most uh, underdeveloped and unfocused films that he's ever put out, personally. Yeah, I mean, again, this is another example of the funny people divide. I think this one's at like 47% on Rotten yeah, Tomatoes or yeah. around there. But uh, Him casting his own children, I think, was uh, a, a move that really paid off very well, though. They're good actors, uh, Maud and Iris. Yeah, and the supporting and supporting cast is really good in this, too. I really like uh, Brooks and Lithgow. Mm-hmm. Oh, John Lithgow, yeah. He's always great. By the way, I know we were talking about this off-air, but the Daddy's Home 2 trailer. Yeah. He cracks me up in that. He's just always someone who could come on and uh, impress you. Has Mel Gibson ever done a role like this ever in his career? Maybe he did comedy in the 90s, but I don't think anything like this. Yeah, I mean, like, this type of production, I just, it, it feels so odd to me, but it, it but at the same time, it feels so right, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but going back to This is 40, I, I really think the film is very episodic. I think it drags uh, way, way too much, and it just never really comes together to create, um, you know, a, a cohesive whole. It's another uh, near two-hour, 20-minute film that, you know, in this genre is completely unnecessary. Um, and it's something that is just, you know, it, it, to me, it's a shame because I do feel that Judd Apatow is a very talented uh, director of, uh, co- of comedy films when he wants to be. But this for me was not one of them. So I guess one thing I could say about this, and I know this isn't the critical thing to say, but I love sitcoms. I thought this felt like a really good series of sitcom episodes. See, now that's exactly why I don't like it. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. Uh, number two from me. 
this is where it starts getting like really, really tough because now we're getting into like territory where um, a lot of the films are very interchangeable. But for me, um, number two, I wish I could do a tie, but I'm not going to do that because that's cheating. Uh, number two is super bad. Um, <laughs> I just really love the throwback uh, feel of the of the film, um, the way Greg, uh, what's his name, Greg Matola? Yeah, Greg yeah. Matola. Like, just the way he shot it. Um, with that uh, desaturated uh, film stock. And then also, too, um, it really introduced a world to Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah in a way where... And Emma Stone. Oh, my God, you're right. Emma Stone is Jules. Yeah. Oscar winner Emma Stone. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Bill Hader, this was a lot of people's first exposure to him as well. You know, Seth Rogen was still uh, pretty new at that point. Uh, he had, you know, knocked up was, I believe, the same year, but only a couple months uh, prior. Yeah, that was June and this was August. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So definitely like a very, very recent uh, release in that regard. But I think this is a film where the jokes for me uh, just land better than they ever have in any of his movies. Um Every moment, every line of dialogue is just so outrageous and it just goes for it and commits itself 100% towards what it's trying to do and it never ever uh, wavers from that. So um, I got to give it to Superbad just simply for just having balls and really just going for it. You know, I mean, this... There's so many like moments in that movie where it just like you just start asking yourself how far can they just continue to push the envelope and they can just keep getting more silly and more ridiculous. But it's never it's never that childish humor that you find in something like Step Brothers. It's that teenage raunchy humor, you know. Yeah, and it's sort of rooted in something a little bigger. Yes, absolutely. Um, that was the other thing too, is how much I truly did care for the friendship between Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah. Uh, to me, it, they felt like real, fully developed people. And as a result of that, I truly cared about the relationship between the two of them, uh, which is something that you don't normally find because in a lot of these movies, the uh, characters are artificial and the friendships are phony. And, you know, this was one where it just really felt like I was watching um, a group of my friends get into mischievous adventures. And it was something that, uh, you know, for me, really, really, really worked on so many levels. It's one yeah. of my favorite co comedy films uh, of all time, uh, just from a, from a standpoint of how much it makes me laugh. It's interesting because I usually don't like that crude, raunchy humor. But here it didn't feel like it was just happening to happen. There was a reason for all of it. Right, because they establish who these characters are. And once you contextualize it of, oh, well, these are a bunch of horny teenagers that, you know, are looking to, you know, score some alcohol and just have a good time. You know, you really, you you accept it. Where, you know, to counteract that with something like Step Brothers for a moment here, you know, you take it to men, fully grown men, and you're telling them to act like immature children, and you just don't believe it. You just don't buy it. And as a result, the humor doesn't land. Yeah. So, there you so, go. That's a good one. All right, what do you got? Number one, I'm just going to be very brief on this since we talked about it already, but my number one is Bridesmaids. Yay! I saw this in May 2011, opening night. I sort of knew who Kristen Wiig was from SNL, but... I hadn't really seen her front and center. There were scenes, Matt, that the audience didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to expect. And when they are trying on dresses and they all get sick, I can't even tell you how much that theater was laughing. Oh, I thought yeah. I was going to stop breathing. I was laughing so hard. Melissa McCarthy, Melissa McCarthy, Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. My goodness. 
you know, she was Suki on Gilmore Girls, that that was such a different character compared to what she's doing here. I love that she got the Oscar nomination. I love Kristen Wiig's screenplay. I think it's just a terrific film that launched its own genre over the last couple of years. That was six years ago. And look at all these uh, female-centric stories we've seen from Paul Feig and company since. Oh, well, Rough Night uh, is uh, is the most recent example of that uh you know, group of girls uh, film looking to get into mischievous adventures, you know. Which makes you admire how well Bridesmaid did it. Oh, uh, oh, absolutely. So that's my number one. I know you love it. I love it. And I'm so happy Judd Apatel put his name on it and brought it up to, I think, like $150 million. Yeah, no, that film did extremely well for itself. Um, and I love that there's no sequel to it. Oh, thank God. Yeah. That it's just <laughs> its own thing. They move on to bigger and better projects. Yeah. Unlike, unlike This is 40. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> um, my number one is forgetting Sarah Marshall. Ah, um, I really feel that this film has just you know gained, um, you know, and, and gained credibility over the years and really has risen the ranks and esteem for me. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the understated performance by Jason Segel, who plays a guy who is in a situation that many people find themselves in where their girlfriend, you know, dumps them for possibly somebody that may be uh, better looking or uh, more successful, whatever the case may be. And that depressive feeling and that also that sad puppy dog like state of mind that (laughs) one finds themselves in. I think that Siegel never, ever, ever overplays it. And he plays it, very, very, very real and with a degree of humanity, which is what I feel draws so many people to that character's plight. You know, it's like every time I watch that movie, I'm actually amazed more and more by his performance at what a line he teeters. Um, He does not have any so uh, silly or over-the-top antics, which he does, to make him be quote-unquote funny except when he bears it all literally exactly this is a guy that is someone that he bears his soul so that we can relate to him and this way when he does go uh to hawaii and he is uh you know um trying to aka win her back um and then he unexpectedly finds something better along the way it's a story that is very heartwarming and is one that um, I feel is a very for its for all of its raunchiness because there is some raunchy scenes in the movie. Obviously, um, I do think that it's actually very heartwarming and I think it lands very well. My only gripe with the movie, um, I only have one complaint. I just don't ever believe that Mila Kunis would go for him. <laughs> but you know, that's more of like a real world pessimistic uh, uh, standpoint. Otherwise, other than that. Um, Jason Siegel wrote this screenplay and it, there just seems to be just that personal element, that personal touch to it that really seeps its way into um, the story of Peter. And I, I just find this movie to just be so enjoyable overall. It, it's such a such a quotable movie, too. I mean, you know, everybody knows like the lines like you sound like you're from London or um, <laughs> my, my favorite my favorite line in the whole movie. There's two there's two favorite Two favorite lines I have from Aldous Snow. Um, geniusly, geniusly played um, played by, uh, what's his face? Russell um, Brand. Russell Brand, thank you. He has, it's, and it's both during the dinner scene 
It's when Kristen, uh, Kristen Bell is talking about this movie that she's doing, and she says it's a metaphor for society versus technology. And then Russell Brand just interrupts, and he goes, it's a metaphor for crap movie is what it is. <laughs> and that's like a line that I use anytime someone's trying to, you know, oh, like say that about a movie. Like, oh, it's a metaphor, you know, for – and I'm just like, it's a metaphor for crap movie, bro. That's 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 exactly what that is. Um, and then I and love – And Dracula Muppet. Let's not forget that. Oh, wait. Oh, oh my god, yes. Dracula the musical. Amazing. Um, Which led to Jason Segel doing the actual Muppet remake. Yeah. For oh, Disney. It's amazing how one thing just leads to another like that, right? Yeah. My life is a lie. And let's not forget also <laughs> that Forgetting Sarah Marshall had a spinoff, Get Him to the Greek. I prefer not to think about that one. Uh, not even African Child with Rose Byrne. I, I do sometimes uh, reference uh, Stroke the Furry Wall or Pep the Furry Wall, whatever that <laughs> line is. But um, yeah, no, I don't. I try to. I try to block that movie out of my memory. I don't really like it that much. Forgetting Sarah Marshall, though, I, I is one of my favorite comedy films ever. That's period. a great End one. Story. And the fact that it didn't make my own list just really speaks to how much Judd Apatow has. Like, even though he doesn't direct all of his things, he really makes his mark as a producer within them, which is pretty terrific. Yeah, and I'm surprised that uh, neither one of us uh, mentioned uh, The 40-Year-Old Virgin or Knocked Up, but I think it's just more along the lines of, you know, those are like the originals, um, and there have been films that have come along that have kind of like perfected the formula since then, if that makes sense. You know, Absolutely. you were talking about the uh, deadbeat character that learns uh, responsibility and kind of matures. For me, that's the, that's what Sarah Marshall is. And that is like the perfection of that story, in my opinion. Yeah. So, And also, Apatow, let's not forget, we could talk more about this when we talk about uh, television later on in the season. He did writing and producing for The Larry Sanders Show. The Critic, which is one of my favorite underrated shows, and Girls. Yeah. So he's all over the place. And The Big Sick, if this is a big success and goes into the Oscar race, as some have suggested, he would get a Best Picture nomination. Which would be uh, deserved for, um, honestly, his achievements within the industry. Um, It is one that I am uh, rooting for in that that sense. Um, You know, that's something that feels like it's like poetic justice in a way you know he'll never be a best director nominee but a best producer nominee with all the films that he has had his name tied to is something that makes sense absolutely without a doubt and now he's going back to doing stand-up comedy so who knows maybe we could see him getting a writing nomination too in the future maybe so i like judd and i'm glad we talked about his films and have this time to go down memory lane yeah it it definitely be talking about michael bay that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) all right michael where can they find you on the internet you can find me on twitter at mike movie and you can find me at next best picture thank you so much everyone for listening to episode 43 of the next best picture podcast you can subscribe to us on itunes soundcloud TuneIn, google play stitcher and player fm be sure to leave us a review on itunes we would certainly appreciate that nothing less than five stars is ever acceptable in our eyes and we will see you all next time Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. 
We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.